thanks for the opportunity to speak. As most of you know, I have spoken uh, about Catalyst stuff in church before, but I've never actually done a sermon, so this is a first for me. And I've started off really well by not bringing my glasses with me. <laughs> so I better get them. Christians and consumerism is a really big topic. <laughs> There's an awful lot I could say. I could talk about our economic system, capitalism, the goal we have to, for continuous growth. You know, the economy's broke if it's not continually growing. I'm not going to talk about that. There's a lot to say about how consumerism, particularly in rich countries like ours, negatively affects people in developing countries. There's a lot that could be said about that. There's a lot that could be said about how consumerism has the outcome of cruelty to animals on a massive scale through factory farming and stuff, and I'm not going to go there either. There's a lot that could be said about how consumerism is having a terrible impact on the environment. I'm not going to talk about that either, but all those things are actually in this book, which is where I am we're taking a lot of my material from called The End of Greed. It's available through Baptist World Aid. You can go on the website and buy it for $11. Our home group has recently done studies from this and found it very challenging and beneficial. So I encourage it as a group thing or as an um, individual study. It's really worthwhile. Okay. <clears throat> Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, as we think about us as consumers, we pray that you will help us to have your mind. Help us not to be, as your word says, conformed to this world and the way this world thinks, but rather to be conformed by you, by your word. Help us to live our lives as true followers of Jesus, not just in name, but in the way we spend all our time and all our money. We ask this, pray that you'll help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think it means to live the good life? If someone says to you, she's living the good life, or he's living the good life, what do you think of? Do you imagine someone who's wealthy, who can buy whatever they want, living in a big, comfortable house, newly decorated, of course, with all the mod cons? Is it having a new car? Is it taking overseas holidays every year? Having the latest mobile phone, the latest TV? Having access to all the entertainment possibilities, you know, Netflix, Foxtel, Stan, the works. You're living the good life, you've got all that. Or is it doing fun stuff on the weekend, whether your thing is jumping out of aeroplanes or four-wheel driving or um, going to expensive restaurants? Is it having the best of everything? Designer clothes and designer jewellery and beautiful homewares. Is that what it means to really live the good life? Oh, this is, by the way, what I'm going to talk about. What the world tells us, what 
Bible says and some, some reflections on how we should live. Now, I'm sure most of us, if we stop and think about it, know that having more stuff or the best of stuff isn't all there is to the good life. It's about relationships as well. We know that. So is that the good life? Having everything you want and having good relationships. Enjoying an ever-increasing number of possessions or having the best of stuff in the company of family and friends. Is that what it means to live the good life? Something to think about. Here in Australia, we do have it pretty good. By the standards of most people in the world, most Australians do live a pretty good life. Not all of us, to be sure. There's more than 150,000 homeless people in Australia. The gap between rich and poor is getting bigger. There's something like one in five or one in six children in Australia live in poverty, according to the latest statistics. So it's not everybody, but most of us have a pretty good life. We have more than enough food to eat. We have more clothes than enough to wear. We can send our kids to school. Our homes have nice floors. They're not dirt, like in many parts of the world. Our toilets are connected to a sewer system. That is a really big thing. Go to India, Bangladesh, and you'll see that a lot of people don't have that. We have clean running water. We have hot water in our homes. We sleep on comfortable mattresses. We've got enough bedding to keep us warm. Good public health programs mean we vaccinate our children. We can see the doctor if we're sick. Go to the dentist if we get a tooth problem. If we get injured, we can go to hospital and get good treatment. Most of us go on holidays sometimes. These things aren't the experience of many people in our world and I wish they were. I wish everyone on the planet could live like that. And of course many of us have much more than that. And over the last, you know, however long you want to go back, the standard standard of living in Australia has increased. Material possessions have improved. The family car is a good example. When I was a kid, Air conditioning in a car was winding down the manual window. <laughs> window winders. You had an AM radio if you were lucky. But these days, your basic car has air conditioning, electric windows, four speaker stereo, and lots of cars have a lot more gadgets and gizmos. Research has shown that adjusted to today's dollars, Okay, so we're talking, we're comparing apples with apples. Australians are spending, that is consuming, about three times as much as we did in 1960. We eat more gourmet food. And for for some people, eating very well all the time is now an expectation. Our houses are getting bigger. As a matter of fact, Australians now boast the largest homes in the world. On average, yep. Ironically, at a time when the number of people living in each house is actually falling. Compared to 1960, Australians spend twice as much now on what we put in our homes as we did back then. Now, remember it's adjusted to 1960s dollars or current dollars, so we're comparing apples with apples. 
We spend twice as much on recreation as we used to, four times as much on vehicles. And the culture we live in tells us the good life is one in which we consume more and more good things and have good experiences. And because technology has advanced as well, and our, therefore our expectations about what we need have changed. It's hard to actually be a fully a part of this society without a computer and a mobile phone. It's just an expectation now. But we're, we're consuming more than we used to, aside from that. And we think, because we live in a consumer culture, that it's normal as the years go by to get better and better houses, better toys, whether your thing is Cars, boats, fashion, technology, computer games, whatever it is. And we think it's normal to continually be planning for better experiences, whether that's travel, entertainment, etc., etc. Many of us are wealthier than our grandparents could have imagined. But has this made us happier? It doesn't really seem so. Suicide has increased in Australia. Um, the stats I got were from Lifeline, the latest ones I could see were 2015, and the overall suicide rate was 12.6 per 100,000 in Australia, which equates to more than eight deaths by suicide in Australia every day. And it's estimated for every, every one suicide, 30 people have attempted it every day. With such an increased standard of living, you might expect us to have greater levels of life satisfaction. But research shows that this isn't the case either. Since 2001, a research unit at Deakin University have been asking Australians how satisfied they are with their lives. And despite, just since 2001, despite a 20% increase in consumption, there has been no significant improvement in people's feelings of well-being. We live in a culture that leads us to believe we will only be happy as we consume more, yet as we have gotten more, we haven't become any more satisfied with our lives. And what's more, more different research has shown that vast numbers of Australians don't believe they've got everything they need including half of the people in the highest income brackets. Let that sink in. Half of the people in the highest income brackets in Australia don't believe they have everything they need. Social commentators think the reason that we don't think we have what we need is because we tend to compare ourselves with others. If everybody's got a super large flat screen TV, well, I should have one too. If you can't afford a new phone, if you can't afford an overseas trip or a new home or to renovate your old one, you can feel like you're falling behind but somehow or other we're hard done by. We compare ourselves with others and what they have. Here's an example of this for me. My sister's kitchen, and one of our nieces as well, has one of those nice walk-in pantries. And after a family event at one of their homes, I can come back and look at my one covered pantry and think, gee, that's inadequate. <laughs> I should be having something better than this. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
We tend to compare ourselves with others that we hard done by, that we need to upgrade. And that's, of course, how advertising works. Here's an interesting quote from a guy who was a CEO of an advertising company. Next to Christianity, advertising is the, most, is the greatest force in the world. And I say that without sacrilege or disrespect. Advertising makes people discontented. It makes them want things they don't have. Without discontent, there is no progress, no achievement. Think about what you see on TV. The ads are all about showing you the better product to buy or the um, better experience to enjoy. As well as advertising, there's all those shows on TV about home renovations and redecorating, you know, the better homes and gardens and the block and escape to the country and all the others. Watching them can leave you thinking, gee, my house looks pretty daggy. I need to update. You know, I've got to get better cushions, better curtains, better towels. One of the examples they give in this book is, imagine a, a show, a TV show called Perfectly Adequate Homes and Gardens. <laughs> Wouldn't last long, would it? Imagine a TV camera scanning one room and then the next and the presenter says, just your average three-bedroom house. It hasn't got the latest trendy decor, but it provides enough space and shelter for this family. Nothing more to see here. We live in a consumer culture and the assumption is that we will always be improving our material standards of living in line with everyone else always accessing new goods and services, always seeking out new experiences. For in consumerism, the good life is always about consuming more. Now, let me make it clear that there is nothing wrong in and of itself with having a nice house or having a nice garden or going on an overseas trip or buying a new phone or a new TV. God gives us these things. God gives us good gifts material blessings to enjoy. So enjoy them. He is a loving father who gives good gifts to his children. But what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make here is that we in this culture often look to these things as being absolutely essential to our well-being and we develop expectations about our right to have them. And we often don't stop to ask, how does God want me to spend my money? Actually, it's his money on loan to me. <laughs> the culture we live in prompts us, encourages us to always be wanting more. Most of us have enough, but we're always being presented with something else to want. Okay, so what does God's word, the Bible, say about this desire for more and more and for bigger and better that we so often have? The shocking truth is that that's actually greed. Having enough but wanting more is greed and our culture encourages us to be greedy. How many of us have enough but find ourselves wanting more? I know I do. <laughs> I know I do. Our culture, 
21st century Australian media and advertising encourages us to be greedy. We've got to get our head around that and accept it. And of course, always wanting more is nothing new. The Bible has a lot to say about money and greed. This is a verse from Ecclesiastes. We're told, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. It's not you. And how about this is a challenging statement from Jesus, from the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. How many of us actually take this command of Jesus seriously? Not to collect stuff. Do not lay up for yourselves. For me, at this point in my life, the temptation to collect stuff, especially in the area of clothes, probably could have guessed that. Plants. Plants in my garden. I have a succulent collection in my laundry. For wealthier people, it's probably money in the bank, a share portfolio, properties, cars, jewellery, artworks. What is it for you? What do you want more of than you really need? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things. I'm not saying that. But at what point does it become more important than it should? What is it for you? Shoes? Power tools? Computer games? Travel experiences? Jesus warned us against greed. He said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, the Bible tells us that greed is actually a form of idolatry. Idolatry is when we put something other than God at the centre of our lives. When we live for something other than, than God and his will for us. So what should we do instead of wanting more? The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I'm sure we all know people who've been Christians but have wandered away, got distracted by stuff. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money itself, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So what's the alternative? He continues, Paul writes to Timothy, but you, man or woman of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called 
when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Beginning of that passage, I'll go back. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We need to practice contentment. We need to cultivate it. We need to work on it. We need to work on being content with what we have. And I think the best way to do that is to be thankful for what we have. To consciously thank God every day for the things we enjoy. Have you ever thanked God for your fridge? (laughs) You can keep a whole lot of food fresh rather than having to go to the shop every day. Your mattress, your phone, a hot shower. All these are great things to enjoy. Thank God for the simple pleasures, for good food, for being able to rest in the evening, for the hot shower. We need to cultivate contentment in our lives because the world around us encourages us to be discontented. We need to work on it. And then we need to pursue godliness, as the passage just said. Because what the Bible says is the good life is a life that is rich in love towards God and rich in love for each other. More words of Jesus. A Pharisee, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus also said, now that I've washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And again in another verse, this is my command, love each other. I pondered for a bit about what it actually means to wash each other's feet in this day and age. I'm not sure, but it definitely means serving each other. And it definitely means getting messy and helping somebody else deal with their mess. Jesus taught that the very centre of a good life is love for God and love for neighbour. The test, therefore, for whether you have lived a good life is not what you've managed to acquire or what you've had the privilege to experience, but how much you have loved. I want to read just a short passage of this book. I think it's really good. It's significant to realise that when Jesus called people to love their neighbours as themselves, he was not saying anything controversial. He was simply repeating the command of the Old Testament law. In Leviticus. What was controversial was his definition of neighbour. Many religious teachers of his time interpreted neighbour to mean their fellow Israelite. Anyone outside this group was not a neighbour needing to be loved. 
But when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, he challenged this interpretation, calling his followers to love any person in need, whether they be an Israelite, Samaritan, from a different ethnic and religious group to them, or an enemy. Jesus said, love your enemies. Here is the first radical difference between the good life to which Jesus calls us and the good life envisaged by consumerism. Consumerism tells us that while we should not harm people outside our circle of family and friends, neither do we have any great obligation to them. Consequently, it's good and proper to indulge ourselves, our families and friends, with as many goods, services and experiences as possible. Jesus, however, calls us to expand the circles of love, to proactively seek out those in need, and to care for them using the resources God has given us. How are you going with loving your neighbour? How am I going with that? One of our actual next door neighbours, <laughs> a couple, pretty cranky, demanding. How should I be loving them, even though they don't deserve it? <laughs> Let's think again about the laying up, your, laying up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin, you might say, the fluctuations of the share market or <laughs> banks going bust or uh, property losing its value or something. Do not destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So I want to ask you today and I ask myself, where is your heart? Is it with Jesus loving what he loves? Or is it really in this world and what you'd like to have or do or be in the world? How do you know where your heart is? Well, what do you find yourself thinking about and hoping for? What are you looking forward to? When I have a quiet moment, where do my thoughts go? Do you have goals for your life? What are they? What would you like to do or achieve? Are my goals, are your goals about the kingdom of God? Or are, are, or are they about being more comfortable and having more fun in this life? Of course there are other forms of idolatry than wanting better, position, better possessions and better experiences. For some people it's success in their career or their business. That's where their energy goes. That's what they spend their time and attention on. And that's, that's another hint about where your heart is. Where do you, what do you spend your time on? What's your attention go to? For other people it's looking good. The increasing numbers of people having cosmetic surgery and money on beauty treatments and all that stuff. In these days of social media, for some people the goal is to have a constant stream of perfect Instagram images. Could be keeping fit, which is in itself is well and good. But if that becomes more important to you than loving God and loving other people, then that too can be an idol. Jesus tells us we should be working for the kingdom 
that building his kingdom is what should be central to our hopes and dreams. So make no mistake about this. Following Jesus is countercultural. At the very least, people will think you're weird. As you know, and for the visitors who don't, my husband John has just turned 60 and retired from 36 years of teaching in high schools. How should we, we're faced with the question, how should we spend our retirement? Our culture's expectation is that we should please ourselves, make ourselves comfortable, have fun, and that's tempting. That's really tempting. The world says, treat yourself. You've worked hard, enjoy it. You deserve it. But the Word of God tells us that we should be loving God and serving Him and other people as the priority in our lives. How should we structure our lives so that that's the priority? I'm a consumer. I like shopping. I am totally on board with the idea of shopping as a leisure activity. (laughs) Totally on board with it. But if I'm going to be serious about laying up treasure in heaven, I need to ask myself, is shopping, whether it's at an actual shopping centre or whether it's online, is that really what God wants me to be doing? Or will wandering, wandering around looking at stuff actually make me discontented with what I have? Will it lead me to spend money that I should be spending on building the kingdom and sharing with people in need? And here's where it gets tough. Should I buy that new pair of shoes or would God rather me donate that money so someone else on the other side of the world can get surgery for their sight? Or providing life-saving vaccinations to a child living in poverty? Or, for an example, closer to home, helping a family who's doing it tough in the drought or one of the homeless people in Australia. Am I prepared to live simply so others can simply live? That is not... It's not mine. I borrowed that. (laughs) Am I prepared to live simply so others can simply live? And is shopping the best use of my time? How about supporting efforts to reach unbelievers with the good news of Jesus? How about using my money to support the church in developing countries so that as people become followers of Jesus, they can be taught properly and not be led away by false teaching? There's a whole lot of mission agencies out there that need your money for those sort of kingdom goals. I firmly believe that we who have so much need to be constantly questioning how much does God want me to spend on this or that? I think the price we pay for having so much in this world is to always be living with the tension of questioning how God would have me spend my money. While ever I'm in this life, 
I need to do this. Now it doesn't mean, as I said before, it doesn't mean that I don't enjoy God's good gifts. Of course I need to take time to rest and recharge my batteries. But I may need to put limits on my enjoyment in this life for the sake of the kingdom. Loving God and loving other people. We need to continually struggle so that's at the centre, not my own comfort. I love travel. But how much of God's money should I spend on that? So what if I don't get to see all the places in the world I want to go and see? This life is not all there is. And it says in Corinthians, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. And this is the big difference between us and non-Christians living in our consumer culture. We're fixing our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. May God give us grace to lay up treasure in heaven, not just make ourselves comfortable on earth. May God help us to live for Jesus in all the decisions we make about how we spend our time and money. May God help us to live a truly good life, one that is rich in love for God and for others, and not just our family and circle of friends, but those in need as well. Amen.